would you like to watch the screen? And we're going to see somebody being, shall we say, less than honest. Have a watch of the clip. Photographs of the inaugural proceedings were intentionally framed in a way in one particular tweet to minimize the enormous support that had gathered on the National Wall. This was the first time in our nation's history that floor coverings have been used to protect the grass and the wall. That had the fact of highlighting many areas where people were not staying, while in years past, the grass eliminated this visual. This was also the first time that fencing and magnetometers went as far back on the wall, preventing hundreds of thousands of people from being able to access the mall as quickly as they had in the inauguration past. Inaccurate numbers involving crowd size were also tweeted. No one had numbers because the National Park Service, which controls the National Mall, does not put any out. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period, both in person and around the globe. Even the New York Times printed a photograph showing the, the a, a misrepresentation of the crowd in the original tweet in their paper which showed the full extent of the support, depth, and crowd and intensity that exists. These attempts to lessen the enthusiasm of the inauguration are shameful and wrong. No, Sean Spicer, they're not. What is truly shameful and wrong is your open and aggressive dishonesty from a public platform. Trump's inauguration was not the largest one observed in person, and there were numbers. Firstly, check out these two photographs taken between 11 a.m. and 11.30 a.m. on each of the days in which the ceremonies were held, on the 20th of January 2009 for Barack Obama and the 20th of January 2017 for Donald Trump. They show a stark difference between the attendances on both occasions. Secondly, check out the large differences in the total number of journeys taken on the Washington Metro uh, on each of those days as reported by them through their ticket sales. This is exactly where numbers can be counted. There were 0.57 million journeys on the day of Donald Trump's inauguration, whereas for Barack Obama, there were 1.1 million journeys, approximately twice the number, and, as it happens, the day on which the Washington Metro recorded their highest ever number of journeys. Trump's inauguration did not even reach the standard average number of weekday commuter journeys for the metro, which is around 0.65 million commuters. I don't know about you, but I break out in a cold sweat when someone is so obviously and openly deceitful, particularly someone in a public role. I even find it personally hard to stay measured and steady around open dishonesty and blatant hypocrisy and something of the injustice of it rises up in me and it makes me cross. It's the last in our virtue series this morning and we're exploring two virtues that are very closely related, honesty and integrity. I believe that we need to have deep honesty and integrity on the inside of us more than ever. Honesty is telling the truth. Honesty is remaining objective and fair. Honesty is a willingness to be corrected and moulded by externally verifiable facts that others can also see and confirm are factual, correct and true. Integrity can be seen as long-haul honesty, if you like. 
Integrity is someone or something that has had honesty threaded through it so repeatedly and so reliably that we can know there is a foundation on which we can safely build our trust. Another way of looking at integrity is that it's nothing to prove and nothing to hide. When we are in integrity, we are whole and internally consistent. We have no need of any agenda to make us look better than we are. We think and we say and we do things that don't need covering up. Integrity is never having to be evasive later because the internal structures were all correct and right originally. The recent collapse of that bridge in Italy is an extremely powerful picture of what happens when integrity is compromised. Something was clearly very wrong with the internal structure of this bridge, and there's, and, and there's no doubt that that had been building up over some, over some time. Something was also very wrong with the integrity of the ongoing engineering support and maintenance of the bridge, which could have identified uh, what was wrong and corrected it before the disaster occurred. Uh, incidentally, I watched a piece on the uh, Birmingham local news recently, uh, just a week or so ago, where they said that the work on that overhead section of the M5 to the west of the city is going to take longer than they previously thought because they found out that more needs doing, uh, more needs correcting on it than they originally thought it did. And so, yes, it's a pain that our motor journeys are being delayed, but it's much, much better to be delayed and safe. Amen? Amen. Without honesty and integrity, we are setting ourselves up for a spectacular collapse and all the damage that goes with it. So we've explored a number of the virtues over the course of this summer series. Courage and humility, loyalty, perseverance, modesty, reverence, purity, frugality. And today it's the turn of honesty and integrity. And I believe that each and every virtue comes with a price tag that we must be prepared to pay. If we don't, we get faced with a much larger sort of spiritual bill later on if we failed to embrace that virtue early. So, for example, if we don't persevere now, we don't build anything solid for ourselves, which we can then get to enjoy later down the line. If we're disloyal now, we'll have a, a serious set of relationship problems later, a relationship deficit, and we won't have many people loyal to us. If we're not frugal now, and frugal just means being wise with our resources, as Pastor Mark preached last week, we will end up living with perpetual debt, always living beyond our means, and unable to enjoy that freedom that good stewardship can bring to us. And so really, it's our heart at BCC that we teach accurately and clearly, not just into the price, but also and especially the value that comes with each of the virtues. We want to lay out to all of us you and me, why it makes so much sense to embrace and develop them all properly so that our lives are built really strongly and that we don't get caught unawares later down the line. A person in the Bible who demonstrates the journey from dishonesty to truthfulness, perhaps more than any other, is Jacob. Uh, the name Jacob uh, sounds very similar and actually means uh, to the Hebrew word deceiver. It's got a connotation of deception in it. His life is a, like, like a case study in what happens uh, when you are dishonest, or if you are dishonest, and how you can become more honest by having an interaction or an encounter with God. Now, Jacob was a twin. His brother was called Esau, and they were born to Isaac and Rebekah. Esau was born first, and Jacob was born second. And Jacob came out 
holding on to Esau's heel. Esau became a hunter and a man of the outdoors, while Jacob was quieter and stayed at home. Now, something you need to understand is that the oldest boy uh, in Jewish families uh, inherit what's called a birthright, and it carries some, quite a few privileges with it. You assume the father's uh, rights and authority and responsibilities uh, on his death, and you receive twice as much inheritance as any other boys in the family. And there are various other things that go with that. Now, Esau, it must be said, had a rather dismissive attitude to his birthright as firstborn. And, and, and on one occasion, Jacob exploits his older brother's physical hunger after coming home from hunting to gain Esau's birthright off of him. Rather unfairly, in fact, in exchange for some food. On another later occasion, as Isaac's, uh, their father was approaching old age and was blind, he told Esau as firstborn that he would give him his fatherly blessing. And their mother, Rebecca, overhears this and plots with her younger son, Jacob, how he might gain this blessing deceitfully and dishonestly instead. And and she suggests it in three ways. It's not just like a a one-off comment. She says, first of all, you need to put some goat skins on your arms so that you will seem as hairy as your older brother. Anyone here got hairy arms like a goat skin? Yeah, I don't want to meet you, sorry. Um, Secondly, uh, she suggested, why don't you wear Esau's clothes so that you can smell like your brother? And thirdly, uh, she says, why don't you take him a meal that your father would have expected from your older brother. She sets him up in this way to be deceitful and gain this blessing. And the upshot of the story is that, which is what we see in this painting here, is that through this deceitful and dishonest plan, Jacob obtains his father Isaac's blessing and Esau is robbed of it. Genesis 27, uh, 18 to 19, records the moment that Jacob openly lies to his dad. So Jacob took the food to his father. My father, he said. Yes, my son, Isaac answered. Interesting statement from dad. Who are you? Esau or Jacob? Most parents will know the voice of their children, won't they? So he's not sure. Jacob replied, it's Esau, your firstborn son. I've done as you've told me. Here is the wild game. Now sit up and eat it so that you can give me your blessing. Why is quite significant for this whole family at this stage in their life journey is that dishonesty and deceitfulness seem to happen without much question. Rebecca actually helps her son Jacob be dishonest, rather than calling it out and stopping it in its tracks. And in the previous chapter of Genesis to this particular story, we see that Isaac himself is deceitful about his wife to a king called Abimelech, which is another story. Now, there's not a lot of commentary from the writer of Genesis on this dishonesty, but it's plain that there's no question that it's there, and that it's wrong, and that... Most of the family seem to have a problem with honesty. Now, I strongly believe that honesty and and the related virtue of integrity are to be taught from a very young age to all our children by their parents. I really believe that. It could even be the case, as with the formation of language, that if these two virtues are not taught and disciplined and modelled and celebrated at the right time in a person's formation then it can become a stumbling block perpetually for people uh, into, their, into their whole adult lives. In my opinion, truth-telling can be much harder to learn and grasp later than it is early on uh, as a young kid. And so parents, you do a vital kindness in disciplining your children to be truth-tellers from an early age. Now, 
each of my three boys went through their own journey on this uh, between about the ages two and four, uh, of two and four, and uh, their body language was a dead giveaway that they were not being honest. And uh, I'll allow you to decide which of uh, George, Simon, and Adam these uh, different uh, behaviours are. You can ask yourself if you want to, but one boy would say something untrue, and then straight after he'd said it, he'd kiss the air as though that would make it better. So he would say, No, I haven't heard this. And if you watched and you followed it closely, it was a, for a while, it was a dead giveaway that he wasn't being honest. There was another boy, he would, uh, he would do one of two things. He would either try and sort of brazenly say you out, uh, and even deny whatever it was you were saying. And sometimes he had a little tummy cheek as well. So he would say, what biscuit? <laughs> and he'd put aside his cheek just for a moment or two. Uh, and then, and then the, the final boy, uh, and this was great, he had three things that he would do. His words would go all muffly. He would step up to the plate of lying, because you've got to do that, haven't you? I mean, you know, that, that's important, to step up to the plate of lying. And then he'd blink a lot as well. So he was the easiest to spot. So he would sort of say, what are the Like that. And this obviously was all between the ages of two and four. And it was just such an easy thing to spot. The outcome of the dishonesty in Jacob's family, and I'm, I'm having a bit of fun with you, but it is actually a spectacular breakdown of trust and community. It is. Isaac and Esau both realise that they've been deceived. Esau actually then plots to kill his brother as soon as their father, their father Isaac has passed away. And in response, Jacob runs away to his uncle, a man called Laban, who lives in another country. And it seems that Jacob is surrounded by episodes of dishonesty. Uh, not just the instigator of it, but he seems to have a family system that is dishonest. There are further episodes uh, for him. His uncle Laban is dishonest with him about his two daughters, Rachel and Leah. Jacob breeds Laban's flocks of sheep in a way that I personally don't feel was fully in integrity. Some of it seemed to have God's blessing. I'm not sure it was all completely above board. And he ends up with all these healthier, stronger herds for himself. And he kind of pull, sort of pulls a fast one on Laban, it seems. Put in the terms of the language of boundaries, Jacob is like a controller. He manipulates people and situations for his own gain. And he, he's quite happy with dishonesty and hypocrisy to achieve those ends. So he tricks his brother out of his birthright, his father to gain a blessing, and his uncle to get more wealthy. And in each of these key family relationships, there's a spoiling that goes on as a result. And we can all bring to mind someone who has behaved like this towards us in our own lives, can't we? Uh, I once had to uh, deal with a man who was very deceitful. And he kept making grand claims about uh, who he'd worked with in the music industry. Uh, the art artists like Queen and Cliff Richard and Take That. And I was really impressed to begin with. But then I noticed after a while that he had no photographs or autographs as evidence of all of his amazing celebrity contacts that he claimed to have. And the end for me came one day when he claimed that he'd been on stage playing with Queen live at Wembley as part of that famous Live Aid concert in 1985. That just did not check out for me. And when I did some research into it, I found it, his claim to be totally false. Now, we're no longer friends, and I would only be really prepared to rekindle a connection with him if I felt that there was much more substantial truth-telling going on from him. 
Let's forward wine 20 years or so in Jacob's story. Jacob is now, at this stage in his life, really keen to restore a connection with his estranged brother. He's not seen Esau in all this time. And so what he does is he puts in loads of preparation for a peaceful meeting. He sends ahead gifts to his brother. But he also takes kind of, I think, quite wise precautions by dividing up his uh, household and property just in case this reunion goes badly wrong. Let's pick up the story uh, in Genesis 32, uh, 20 to 32, and it'll be up on the screen there behind me. Jacob thought, I will try to appease him, that's his older brother Esau, that he's not seen for 20 years, by sending gifts ahead of me. When I, when I see him in person, perhaps he will be friendly to me. So the gifts were sent on ahead while Jacob himself spent that night in the camp. During the night... Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two servant wives and his 11 sons, and crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. Now this left Jacob all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until daybreak, until, until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he could not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of his socket. Then the man said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob. Why do you want to know my name? The man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. And even today, the people of Israel don't eat the tendon near the hip socket because of what happened that night when Jacob strained the tendon, sorry, when the man strained the tendon of Jacob's hip. There's some really key things to see here. I want to suggest this morning that this is the point at which Jacob stops trying to manipulate and deceive others. And he starts to take his struggles about what he wants directly to God. Perhaps the story is saying that where Jacob used to leave others with a limp because he manipulated them or could not be honest with them or shortchanged them, he now owns that limp himself. Let's put it a little bit differently. That there is always a cost connected with a virtue. And Jacob has spent his life living in a kind of dishonesty credit system. And it's hurt others. And it's also made his own family community all the less for it. But in wrestling with God and taking his struggle in this area straight to God, he starts to own his problem, or this problem that he has. And it genuinely becomes between him and God. And not about taking advantage of others directly. You know what? God is always big enough to take us on, all of our stuff. And perhaps other people aren't so much. As a result, God marks this kind of, he's got a watershed in his maturity. This is an episode that marks a stepping up by Jacob. um, And he, he reflects that back to Jacob by giving him a new name. If we assume the man that he's wrestling with is, is a person who represents God. And the new name is Israel, which means he who fights with God. This gives Jacob permission to move on from his old, dishonest and hypocritical self and he becomes more honest and he starts having greater personal integrity. 
So perhaps another definition of integrity then is that what it is, is that we shoulder personally the cost of the virtues that we live by, rather than pretending that they don't exist or that if they do, someone else has to pay for them on our behalf. God is the person with whom we should directly struggle in all areas of virtue, including honesty and integrity. So once we, ha- once we start having a struggle with God, it then starts to reshape that, that struggle we were having with other people, and it makes those interactions with uh, people around us a lot better. There's another really interesting little thing to share with you here. Um, the story contains this interesting wordplay in the original Hebrew. Um, The words sound very similar. So God wrestles, which is Yabek, with Jacob, which is Jacob, by the Jabok River, which is Yabok. And so just as the kind of key words in the event are getting all mixed round, uh, this river crossing and this wrestling match and this person who represents God is representing a mixing up of who Jacob is by God in order to make him better than he was before. And in a sense, that's the journey of discipleship, that picture right there for all of us. God takes us and he kind of mixes us up and he makes us better. Last thing I want to say about this story is that Jacob gets things ironed out with God first and then gets them sorted out with Esau second. And that's a change. He would just go straight to the person in the past. No, and this time he's having an interaction with God. And I think there's all sorts of really helpful patterns in this story for us all. It's a bit of a mysterious story, to be honest. But what it seemed to be saying is, let's take our struggles to God. He'll help us resolve our difficulties with others. And perhaps that will be a difficult wrestling match between us and God, where he corrects us and he heals us, or he makes us limp even. Which might be a picture of, well, do you know what? You need to now live inside your own boundaries, uh, Jacob. And then shortly after the wrestling episode, Jacob does successfully reconnect with his long-lost brother Esau. So with... In terms of honesty and integrity, Jacob has a very poor model to start with in his family, but it improves after his encounter with God. So, out of that story, my question to us all as BCC this morning is, how do we respond to the strong call of these two very closely related virtues, honesty and integrity? Well, I think there's three decisions we all need to make. And I'm going to encourage you to make all three today. Some of you may have made the first one already, but hear me out. The first issue we all need to settle, 100%, fair and square, we need to settle uh, fully the issue of the honesty and integrity of the Bible itself. We just need to settle that. Now, I include this point uh, as although many of us in the room have arrived at the right conclusion uh, on this matter, I I would suggest, perhaps you're here today, maybe as our guest, maybe you're checking church out, and you're not so sure about this issue. After all, it's not really reasonable to ask God's words to lift our own standards of honesty and integrity if we're not fully convinced that God's word itself has those things. That's, you know, that's a fair conclusion. So if, you're, if your jury is out over that issue, why would you go to the Bible to ask you to be better in these areas? And that's a fair point. Let me say that there is masses and masses of evidence that the Bible has honesty and integrity to it as God's word. Let me use a testimony from a political event that had a whole load of, uh, well, lying, intrigue, uh, no leadership integrity at all, it seems to me, to kind of make this point. In 1972, uh, in America, a scandal known as Watergate took place, and it involved 
corruption and injustice and uh, obstruction of justice uh, to really the highest level of uh, the American government. 69 people got indicted uh, in Watergate, 48 people got found guilty. President Nixon himself had to resign over the issue. Now, one of Nixon's chief, uh, chiefs of staff was a guy called Charles Colson. And he served seven months in jail uh, for his part in the Watergate scandal. Now, not long after Watergate and his prison sentence, in 1973, Charles Colson became a follower of Jesus. And his life totally changed, praise God. He became a public speaker for the cause of Christianity. He wrote over 30 books. And he pioneered a ministry called Christian Fellowship International. And he said something extremely interesting to me about honesty versus lies where the Bible is concerned. This is fascinating what he says. He says this, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead and then proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison. They would have not endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. That is a powerfully compelling point. And it's from someone who went through it from one side to the other. Dishonesty and hypocrisy, which are the straight opposites of honesty and integrity, these two virtues we're looking at today, they often expose themselves, and they sometimes expose themselves very quickly. Now think for a moment about a few of the other things you may already know about the, uh, about the Bible. Uh, in addition to the willingness of these people that Charles Colson mentioned, who were those first-hand witnesses who were prepared to go to their deaths for the sake of the truth of what they saw and heard. The best opposition, think about this a minute, you know this already, the best opposition that the fiercest of Jesus' opponents could come up with was taking issue with the day of the week on which he did his healings. Think about that a minute. If I were in opposition to Jesus back then, I really would have wanted to have found something slightly stronger than that to come against him with. I.e., Jesus, you're healing on a Sunday again. It's not very strong, is it? I would want something a lot stronger than that. What does that tell you about the nature of Jesus' healings? It tells you that they happened, didn't it? People had an issue of the day of the week, not the fact of the healings. Or what about Jesus' own half-brother, James? James is my personal hero. He didn't believe in Jesus the whole time that Jesus was alive, but then mysteriously becomes his follower only after Jesus dies on the cross. Surely that would have been the perfect point for James to, for James to put his hand up and say, hey, I told you so, Jesus was a total fraud. I know I'm his half-brother. But James does not do that. Instead, he becomes a church leader. Perhaps you're someone who needs to journey a bit on this matter of the honesty and integrity of the Bible itself. And if you are that person... I highly recommend a book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, which is also now a great film. And at church, I think we saw this last year or earlier in the year. Lee Strobel spent two years as both a crime journalist and investigative detective trying to attack the case for Christ 
the person of Jesus in any way that he could, but he ended up becoming a follower of Jesus instead. Now the point I'm leading to, to uh, or I'm leading towards is this. If the Bible is true, as millions of people have already found it to be so, then it is perfectly reasonable to put your own life's foundations deep down into it. Its honesty and integrity will always both surpass and encourage yours. The honesty and integrity of the Bible will always be higher than yours, but it will also always encourage your honesty and integrity along with it. And the next logical step on from seeing that God's word is honest and it has full integrity is to respond to the truth of the person of Jesus Christ, who is presented to us in God's word in order that we may believe in him and have eternal life. John, the apostle, uh, one of Jesus' closest followers, concludes his gospel with, the, with these words from the end of John's gospel, John 20. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs, in addition to the ones recorded in this book, but they are written, what? So that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. In other words, God has made sure that, he, that we would receive his true, reliable, and honest word to us in all integrity in order that we can come to know his son Jesus for ourselves. And perhaps you're sitting here this morning and it's time for you to receive Jesus as Lord and Saviour so that you can have that life that our worship leader Kevin was talking about when we were worshipping. Life and life to the full in the power of the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Second thing to say. So establish the honesty and integrity of the Bible, number one. Second thing, we need to wrestle our private worlds into integrity before God. We need to wrestle our private worlds into integrity before God. The late Billy Graham uh, was exceptionally well known around the world uh, for his evangelism. I'm sure every single person in this room has heard that name. But what you may not know is that early on in his ministry... He and his associates developed and then stuck to something which they called the Modesto Manifesto. And that came from, that came from the place in California where they met and agreed it. Uh, this was designed to guard against even the slightest hint of scandal in order that their ministries would be protected. So Billy Graham and his team resolved four things. To guard against lying and deceit, they resolved never to exaggerate the, the numbers at their meetings. To guard against financial theft, they agreed that they would only take a fixed salary from their organisation. To guard against sexual sin, they agreed that they would never be alone with a woman other than their wife, mother or daughters. And lastly, to guard against spiritual pride, they never criticised fellow members of any church. That would be a nice thing, wouldn't it? They held each other accountable for these things and it resulted in Billy Graham's ministry having both immense durability and credibility for six decades. So if we are to drive strongly towards honesty and integrity in our lives and avoid that spiritual bridge collapse that we've seen in Italy, we must, must, must address integrity issues in here, lying at the heart of our private lives. And we saw Jacob doing that, didn't we? He wrestled alone with God in the private space to sort out an issue in himself and got God's blessing and power to start living a better life. Now, I don't actually think this is too complicated for most of us in the room. Most of us know what our issues and points of struggle are. Sometimes we know them painfully well. Maybe 
on the truth and honesty front, we, may, we need to make our CV absolutely accurate and correct. This is a picture of that guy Claude from The Apprentice. Uh, if you've ever watched The Apprentice, as they get towards the end of the series, he comes out and he starts grilling these, the kind of finalists on their CVs. And he says, well, that's not true, is it? You say you've got a seven million pound business. I've researched it with Companies House and it's 200,000. What are you talking about? And they all kind of go, oh, and start shaking. Maybe it's time to make your CV right. Just a hunch. Maybe we need to stop copying music illegally. None of us ever do that, do we? Hmm. Maybe we've some adjustments to go home and make on what we've said is insured on our insurance policy. Because, like, if we claim that falsely, then we could have that thing. Like, we don't have it now, but, you know, it'd be nice to have it, wouldn't it? Perhaps we need to dial down on that amazing celebrity lifestyle we appear to be living on Facebook. <laughs> Perhaps we need to get a driving license. Then we can drive. Because we're already driving, but it'd be great to have the license to go with it, yeah? You with me? Perhaps we actually need to get married. And then when we tell our friends that we're married, it's true. That would be good. I'm nudging you a bit this morning. The Huffington Post ran an article last year about the most common lies people tell and why they tell them. And they found, unsurprisingly, that lying is broken into three areas. Uh, to protect yourself, number one. Number two, to promote yourself. And three, to have a bigger impact uh, on others that you might otherwise have done. The number one lie that people tell each other is this. I'm on my way. <laughs> no, you're not on your way. You're just about to get in the shower. <laughs> second, second biggest lie people say is, it wasn't me. Well, it was you. Uh, the third biggest lie is, I'll call you. I'll call you. And what we're really saying is we're trying to get out of calling the person. We don't really want to speak to them again. Uh, one of the very common lies that a lot of us say, uh, fourth on the list, is I'm fine. When really we're not completely fine, but what we're saying is we don't really want to go through the whole drama of explaining it all, and particularly to that person. We're not sure we trust them anyway with that news. Uh, another common um, uh, lie between husband, or from husbands to wives, apparently, is it was half price. Uh, no, it wasn't. It's just that when you got it, it happened to be 50% of the price that they sell it for in Switzerland. And so, like, yeah, you can kind of make it seem like it was half price. I just want to add another one that's not in the Huffington Post list, which is a Christian one, which is when we say, oh, I'm, I'll pray for you. Are you really? Listen, can I suggest that if you say that you're going to pray for somebody, why don't we turn that around into, hey, can I pray for you now? And then you've done it. Or that you... Uh, send them a written prayer later and that's actually my personal preference I keep a prayer journal and if people say they want prayer I kind of note it down and then the following morning I pray it through and very often I will send the, the written transcript of that prayer to them because it's powerful when you come through on your word and say what you're going to do uh, and, and come through on that now I've listen I've made some of these lies and some of these things intentionally a bit light-hearted but lack of honesty and integrity quickly slides into some really serious issues if we don't watch out. And so in this area, for us all personally this morning, it's a case of doing some business with God, getting honest about things before him, confessing, repenting, and making a new start. God is willing to forgive as we open up our hearts to him. And perhaps a response you might need to make today is to come and get some prayer and some support to deal with something that's just not right between you and the Lord. 
You might want to tell the Lord privately here at the front at the end. You might want to get some prayer about it with someone that you trust. But remember, today is the beginning of the rest of your life. God loves it when we resolve to make a new start. The Bible says his mercies are new every morning. That's just fantastic, isn't it? Now, we're not to take advantage of that, but equally, boy, is it great that the Lord is like that. How about making a new start today with something you know that is out of integrity between you and God? In fact, let's just pray for a second. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you'd highlight that thing to anyone in the room that just needs to be reminded of what they need to fix and get it right. Holy Spirit, would you just do that for us, each of us? We might well know what it already is, Lord, but if it isn't, just bring that thing to mind by the power of your Spirit. Help us to be in integrity. And allow us to be washed clean by your presence and your power. Thank you, Holy Spirit. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up and I've got one more thing to say. The third thing. So, Bible is honest and integrity. Yes, we can base our life on it. Secondly, let's get ourselves right on the inside. Thirdly, we need to speak out the truth in the public square. Now, some Christians think that virtues like honesty and integrity are kind of applied only on a personal level. But I don't believe that that's the case. I think that it starts personally and goes corporately and publicly after that. Something interesting to point out about Jacob's journey is that there's a whole nation named after his uh, stepping up point in his life. He got to a point of personal maturity about, no, I need to take this to God and not carry out on other people. And God rewarded that with, I'm going to now call you Israel. And out of that, a whole nation gets its name. A modern day nation that exists in the world right now. So this concept of it being only personal is not true. It goes from personal and it goes into the public's uh, domain. The personal and the public are deeply intertwined. Listen to this. Pastor Rick Warren says this about, about purity, but it could apply to honesty and integrity as well. He says, private purity equals public authority. You've got it, if you've got the internal structures right in here, then all the other stuff works better. So I decided uh, recently that I'd support an organization called the Fair Tax Mark. Many companies are signing up for the Fair Tax Mark to show that their tax practices are run ethically and correctly. Now I'm personally only the 156th person, so that's 156 people have decided to do this, so I'm really early in on it, and I'm quite proud of myself for getting in so quick. I'm the only, uh, I'm only that far down the list of people globally in the whole world who have taken the, the personal fair tax pledge. And that means that I've had my tax checked over, and that I can state that my own personal taxation it's not just legally compliant with the inland revenue, but it's being done ethically and properly. I'm not using any weird loopholes or offshore tax havens because I want my tax to be used by the government for everyone's uh, proper and just benefit. You can join me in this if you want to. I think it's going to be the next fair trade. I really do. Uh, there's some quite big companies and organisations who are already accredited in this. So SSE, the energy provider, uh, the co-op, uh, the TUC, uh, Richard Sounds and Timpson, those people who repair your shoes and give you new keys, and me, we are all certified as fair tax accredited. Now, I've done that for a reason. I want to speak up and be honest about an area that in our society is not honest. It's not in integrity at the moment. 
You know, Google and Amazon and Apple, they're great companies, but their tax affairs are really, really dodgy people. They are not good. They put stuff offshore. They don't pay local, comp- uh, local go- uh, governments and countries for the revenues they make. That's not great. You know, Apple was recently cited as becoming the world's first $1 trillion company. Well, I'm sorry, but that is nothing to be proud of whatsoever when you are consistently sidestepping tax regulations. Sorry, I'm just going to say it. Some of that trillion could be helping our new West Midlands hospital in Smethwick get back on the road a bit quicker. There's a link between the two things, is there not? So I confidently predict that movements like the fair tax mark in around 20, 30 years' time, when a generation has come through, there will be a huge social stigma attached to corporate and personal tax evasion. It just, it just won't happen anything like as much as it does now. So you've heard a little bit of what makes me annoyed in the public realm that I want to speak up about, that I want to make a change on. So would you stand with me and have a look at this slide? This is a guy who's thinking about something that's really annoyed him and made him, made him angry, and, and one, of the, one of the great clues to the thing that God is asking you to speak up about publicly is what makes you annoyed? What makes you upset? What, what do you have a sense of injustice about? What makes you angry on the inside when you see it on the news? That might well be the thing that God's saying, well, come on, speak up about it. Speak the truth. Offer some integrity where there isn't some integrity right now. Perhaps it's needless bureaucracy. Perhaps it's human trafficking. Perhaps it's unfair or biased reporting on the news. Perhaps it's the government reorganising the awards in your area so that it favours one political candidate over another. And you feel like saying, well, no, hold on a minute, that's not fair. We don't do that in democracy. Perhaps it's people like Sean Spicer that we saw on that video at the beginning of my message lying in public office or at least presenting a very warped view. Whatever it is, I want to encourage you to speak up in honesty and integrity about what God is laying on your heart to speak up about. These virtues are important and they're not just private, they are public as well.